This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. As you and I talk today, the confessional Lutheran churches and the confessional Reformed and Presbyterian churches represent two distinct traditions and several different denominations. There's a gulf between them. Apart from a few cooperative enterprises, the two traditions are not actively engaged in very many major ecumenical endeavors or even discussions. As a practical matter, we have become strangers to one another, but it was not always so. Bob Godfrey has been studying and teaching Reformation history since the early 1970s, and he joins us to discuss the question, what separates the Reformed and the Lutherans? He is a prolific author. His latest book is Learning to Love the Psalms. This and other faculty titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here again. When did we come to speak of Lutherans and Reformed? In other words, has it always been the case that Protestants have spoken of Lutherans and Reformed? No, it hasn't always been the case. When did it become the case? I have no idea. Do you know, Scott? (laughs) Okay, I can see it's going to be one of those kinds of interviews. (laughs) You know, Scott, you and I are best as a collaborative team, not a question and answer team. So when, Scott, did we first begin to distinguish Lutherans from Reformed? I think it really begins to take shape Well, I mean, you can find people talking about the Reformed in the 20s, 1520s, I mean, but the consciousness that there are really distinct bodies of churches and theologies, pieties, and practices really begins to develop in the 1540s and is consolidated in the 1550s. Does that resonate with your— Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. I think that labeling is a tricky business because Reformed, after all, is simply a kind of shortening of Reformed according to the Word of God, which in and of itself the Lutherans would have claimed. And uh, by and large, the Lutherans identified themselves as evangelicals upholding the gospel, and the, the Reformed would certainly have wanted to identify with the term evangelical in that 16th century sense. So, yeah, it takes a while for these camps to have a real sense of separateness or distinctiveness from one another. I ask because in our experience, uh, you know, we drive down the street and, and there's such and such evangelical Lutheran church in America, which would be the mainline Lutheran church, and then there'll be such and such LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and then maybe, depending on where you are in the United States, there might be a Wisconsin Synod church and so forth, and then uh, a little farther down, there'll be a Reformed church or a Presbyterian church, and they're obviously distinct congregations representing distinct traditions, distinct denominations, and so this is how we experience it, but it It wasn't always that way, that there were these clear lines of demarcation that distinguished these traditions from each other. No, that's right. And you're almost always right, Scott. And uh, (laughs) We should mark that. (laughs) You know, I think what we always have to remind ourselves is that in the 16th century, there was no concept of denomination as we have today. The fundamental idea of a denomination is churches that have some disagreements with one another, but by and large can recognize one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In the early 16th century, Christians are still operating with the notion that either you're the true church or you're some kind of false church. And what begins to happen is in the 1520s, the question begins to occur in the mind of Luther and others to wonder whether these Reformed Christians, particularly in Switzerland and Southwest Germany, are in fact part of the true church, 
identifying with the Reformation that Luther has been leading, or whether, in fact, they're part of the false church, namely the fanatics, as Luther saw them, those who brought works righteousness back into Christianity in a different way than Rome had had it. So, Luther, having concluded that Karlstadt was a fanatic, and then watching Karlstadt be received in a most friendly manner by Zwingli, that's really what poisoned the well in a lot of ways, I think, for the relationship of Luther and Zwingli. As we experience Christianity, at least institutionally, there are any number of denominations and then non-denominational churches. And so there's dozens and dozens and hundreds and maybe thousands in any particular area. And of course, it's a common sort of polemical point, debating point by Roman Catholics to say, well, see what the Reformation has unleashed. Look at all these churches. You know, Martin Luther uh, opened up this can of worms. And this is a reason why we should not have had a Reformation because it's destroyed the visible unity of the church. Again, is it the case that in the Reformation, Luther opened up this can of worms, and that's why we have all these denominations. No, I think, A, it wasn't Luther's intention to open any can of worms. His intention was to purify the whole church. The problem was some of the church was unwilling to listen and be purified. So I think that's fundamentally unfair to Luther. The other thing that uh, most Roman Catholics are not really willing to face is that the only way to have preserved the kind of visible unity of the church that they're so romantically nostalgic about is to have maintained the Inquisition and the coercive force of the state to suppress other forms of religion. If you're not willing to use the force of the state to suppress false religion, you're going to have false religion. And of course, that's not even getting into the question as to whether there's any real doctrinal unity in the Roman church. I think you can make a pretty strong case that the same kinds of divisions you find among Protestants are precisely to be found in terms of theological divisions within the Roman church. That's a point worth pursuing. Uh, because all the, my points are worth pursuing. <laughs> Thank you very much. The assumption is that everything was more or less unified within Rome, and Luther came and punctured that unity and destroyed it for his own nefarious purposes. Now, you and I wouldn't subscribe that view, but that's a view that's held, some version of it, by people who don't know anything about the history of the church and even by some people who at least purport to know something about the history of the church. So talk to us a little bit about what the state of the medieval church really was leading into the Reformation and how unified it really was. What Rome wants to point to, of course, is an organizational unity. And in the Western church, there was organizational unity, although Roman Catholics usually don't want to really think at all about the fact that since 1054, the Eastern church and the Western church have been divided. So it's not like there was this perfect unity and along came the Protestants and divided it. And the story of the division of the Eastern and Western churches doesn't entirely redound to the credit of the Western church. Laying a document on the altar of Hagia Sophia and saying, you know, we can be united if you recognize the universal supremacy of the Roman bishop, not a way to achieve genuine unity. Well, and of course, the interesting point is that the very character of that document presupposes a recognition that the Eastern churches have never recognized the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. So for a thousand years, Rome was in fellowship with churches that did not recognize Rome's supremacy. There are many ironies in church history. You've probably <laughs> noticed that, Scott Clark. So I think it's important for the listener to understand that uh, Rome looks at the Eastern churches. And, and, of course, there's a formal unity around Vatican II that didn't exist prior to Vatican II between Rome and the Eastern churches. But Rome is willing to look at the Eastern churches in one way 
and she looks at us in another way altogether. We, she says, are churches only insofar as we have subsidiarity, some sort of historical connection to Rome. Otherwise, we're not churches at all. Right. And uh, Rome really cannot deny the historic bishoprics of the Eastern Church. And if that's how you're going to define church, then Rome has particular troubles with the Eastern Churches, which she doesn't have, by and large, with us, the Anglicans maybe being an exception. And so even within Rome, there's a tremendous amount of tension, theologically, politically, organizationally. Can you sketch some of those tensions leading up to the Reformation? Well, yes, before the Reformation, just on one of the key issues of the Reform, namely soteriology, how are we saved, you had Augustinians in the Roman Church in the Middle Ages who taught we're saved by grace alone, and you had moderate semi-Pelagians who said we're saved mainly by grace, but you have to cooperate to some extent, and then you had fairly gross semi-Pelagians who really put almost all of their focus on what we needed to do to get saved. So, there on that very fundamental issue, there was no consensus, there was no Roman and ruling on those things. Actually, the Reformation helped Rome through the calling of the Council of Trent to clarify its own thinking somewhat. But even after Trent, there were still disputes that went on in the Roman Church because Trent couldn't quite bring itself to condemn Augustine. So uh, <laughs> She came close, though. She came close, depending how you read the documents. But there were Augustinians who remained in the Roman Church who thought they could put an Augustinian read on Trent. I think you do that only with difficulty, but still, it shows how very difficult it is to know exactly where Rome stands on all sorts of things. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There were lots of other kinds of tensions. There were uh, political tensions. There were tensions over the papal control of the monasteries, for example, and the revenues associated with that, so that all of these various monastic orders answered directly to the papacy, and the papacy could use those to subvert the other organizations within the church. There were tensions over how to view the Blessed Virgin. Exactly. We shouldn't assume that everything that Rome says today about the Assumption of the Virgin and those sorts of things were necessarily accepted or widely or even uh, dogmatically as fixed doctrine in the Roman Communion. No, Thomas Aquinas, taking the traditional Dominican point of view, argued vigorously against the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin. And what is that, the Immaculate Conception? The idea that Mary in her conception was preserved from the stain of sin. Now, Rome wants to go on to say that doesn't mean she didn't need a savior because she had to be by grace preserved from the stain of sin. But it does say she never was actually personally a sinner. Thomas argues against that. It became the official doctrine of the Roman Church at the First Vatican Council in the 1870s. And there were lots of debates about the extent of papal authority. Absolutely. There was a conciliar movement in the high and late medieval period arguing for the authority of councils relative to the authority of the pope. And popes were asserting their authority relative to councils. And that didn't get worked out really until the early 15th century. Well, yeah, really. And... Uh, as late as Luther, he's appealing to a future council. And the emperor at one point, Charles V, wants a council called, and the pope refuses to do it because he's so nervous that a council might become independent, just as the Council of Basel had earlier. 
So one should not think that uh, the medieval church, the Western church, the Roman church was all, you know, sort of unified together, mature, developed at peace, and then all of that was ruined by Luther. All right. So we have a sense of the context in which the Reformation developed, and Luther reacts to this, and we've discussed that in other episodes, and that reaction develops in different directions simultaneously. So the Reformed churches, from where do they come? As I understand the history, I would say that it's all a development out of Luther, but the Reformed Reformation takes a different tack in certain ways. Right. I mean, the Reformed sort of popular history was to look back to Zwingli as a kind of parallel figure with Luther. I don't think that's accurate. Zwingli's role is not as original as that of Luther's or as seminal, as influential as that of Luther. I think probably Zwingli was himself influenced by Luther in coming to an understanding of the scriptures. But what is interesting, I think, is that in Zwingli, you do have a somewhat different theological passion than you do in Luther. I'm always searching for the right way to express that because I really don't think it's a fundamental contradiction. It's just a somewhat different emphasis. Zwingli is very concerned about idolatry, about the uses of externals to become idols of the heart. Luther is very concerned about Christ and the presence of Christ and is convinced that the only way Christ ever becomes present is through external things. So Luther is wanting to say in certain ways external things are very good. Zwingli wants to say in certain ways external things are very dangerous. And in a sense, they're both right. And there is a measure of talking past each other in talking about these things. Through the 1520s, there were heated debates, particularly about the two natures of Christ, and we can get into that for a moment if you like, and also, as a related question, the Lord's Supper, how we should speak about the Supper, and what is the nature of Christ's presence in the Supper, what's the relationship between the sign and the thing signified. And these debates really became very vituperative, personal, heated and it finally led to a discussion, a meeting at Marburg in 1529. Walk us through that. I just walked into that castle. And I would like to say to everyone who listens to this podcast, go while you're younger than I am, because that <laughs> is a hike up that hill to that castle. Anyway. What did you make of it? How was it as a visit? It's great. Marburg is a charming university town, still feels rather medieval. It's one of those places in Europe you can go and feel you're not in a modern American strip mall. Did you find the table where Luther wrote in chalk? No, it's not actually open to the public, that part of the castle. Oh, that's and the castle is kind of empty. You know, I mainly wanted to try to find a t-shirt with <laughs> Lutheran Zwingli nose to nose, but those Lutherans have no spirit of capitalism. There was a sad paucity of souvenir junk to buy. And not much sense of humor, apparently. That, no, that not would, much sense of humor. That would be good. Yeah, I was hoping you'd see the table and see if the chalk was still visible. No, no. Uh, well, no. so you'll have to explain to the listener what I'm talking about. After a whole series of polemical tracks back and forth between Luther and Zwingli that actually still make quite interesting reading and spiritually profitable reading if you can get over the polemic, because they are really going at it exegetically and theologically in a very interesting way. Having done this for several years, they decide that they will meet Philippeth Hesse, who's one of the Protestant princes and has become rather reformed in his convictions, wants a Protestant united front against the emperor and the political threat the emperor poses. And so he finally is able to get Luther, who's quite hesitant, to agree to meet. Luther's deeply suspicious of these Swiss 
Right. And he's also deeply suspicious of anyone who wants to build a political alliance in the name of Protestantism. He really thinks very consistently that it's an essential part of Christianity that you don't claim your rights, you don't defend yourself, you turn the other cheek. So he's suspicious all the way around about this. But finally, he does agree to meet. So he and Melanchthon are there, along with several other Lutherans. Martin Bootser is there. Zwingli is there. Oikolampadius is there. It's a very distinguished gathering of real leaders of the Reformation. And Luther is sort of amazed to discover that he agrees with Zwingli a lot more than he thought he would. I always say Luther had a kind of domino theory of theology. If you're seriously wrong in an important locus of theology, you're bound to be wrong everywhere else. Well, he found Swingley really wasn't wrong anywhere else. So he began to think, well, maybe there is less problem here than I had thought. And they signed an agreement in which they agreed on 14 of 15 points. Right. And agreed to continue to study the 15th in a peaceable, less public way. And how long did that last? Not long. <laughs> you see this so often in not just church history, but in history in general. If you get two people in a room together, they often discover they have more in common, like each other better than they thought. But the minute they're apart again, all the old suspicions come flooding back. And that was certainly the case for Luther. What were some of the discussion points at Marburg between them? And tell us the story of the table so the listener knows what that's well, about. Well, the key question is, how is Christ present in the sacrament? How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? And what Luther wanted to stress was we have to avoid in approaching the Lord's Supper any kind of rationalism, which is understandable. What do you mean by that, rationalism? He wanted to say you can't use the rational measure of your own mind to do theology. God does things all the time that aren't rational according to our minds. And the way this played out in the sacrament is Luther said to Zwingli, Jesus said, this is my body. And if you have to spend all your time explaining how Jesus didn't mean that, then you've become a rationalist. What you're saying is this can't be Jesus' body. And let me explain to you why it's not. And Luther says, I think we just need to hold on to the words of our Savior. He said, this is my body. That's what I believe. And then Zwingli says to him in part, well, that implies you have to think this or implies you have to think that. And Luther says, no, I don't have to think any of those things. That's just more rationalism at work in theology. <laughs> I just hold on to the words of Jesus. And that's why he took the chalk and wrote on the wood table, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. And Zwingli pointed out Jesus spoke in Greek, not in Latin. Which made Luther only more suspicious that, yes, absolutely. that he's just a tricky Swiss, you know, Maybe pseudo-intellectual. Yeah, Schwermer, fanatic. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Luther wasn't just actually following Luke 22, because if you ask him, well, what does is mean? And Luther uses, and his successors use, three prepositions to explain what is means. Is means in, with, and under. Those are the Lutheran confessional prepositions, however we characterize that. The listener may have heard that view characterized as consubstantiation, but if you put that to a Lutheran, you Lutheran, you hold consubstantiation, a Lutheran will come back and say, no, I don't. Occam held consubstantiation. I don't hold consubstantiation. You can't characterize our view because we're just following the Bible. This is the way that the discussion goes. So Luther's view was more complicated even than he let on. Well, that's true. But it is also true that Luther 
sincerely seem to say, you can get the body into the bread in any number of ways, and I don't really care which way you use to get the body into the bread. But what Luther wanted to be adamant about is, Christ is truly present in his body and in his blood in the sacrament for his people. And I think the motive behind that, as well as I can understand it, is that just as he wants a real offer of the gospel in the preaching of the word, he wants a real presence of Christ, a real offer of Christ in the sacrament of the word. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. The Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Don't you think for him the sacraments are so identified with the gospel that he wants no light between the gospel and the sacrament whatsoever? So whatever the gospel does, and the Spirit necessarily operates through the gospel, then the sacrament necessarily does, which then gets him to a kind of ex opera view, that is, whenever the sacrament is administered, certain things necessarily happen. In the case of baptism, it necessarily confers new life. Now, Luther's not always very clear about that. I really think he doesn't say that. I'm actually with you. Mm -hmm. Whenever I read the small catechism, you think Luther's going to go one way on baptism, and then right when you think he's going to close the deal and say, and here's the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, he kind of dodges at the end, and you think— okay, it's a little ambiguous. Right. And then in other places, he's not ambiguous at all. He says, baptism profits you nothing if it's not received in faith. What he wants to say, it seems to me, is if you wonder if Christ is near to you, if you wonder if Christ is willing to bless you, if you wonder when your faith reaches out, there's anything for it to grab onto, I want you to know, yes, there is. He's there. He's with you. He's for you. And all you have to do is embrace it with faith. Your faith doesn't create the presence of Christ. Your faith receives the presence of Christ. And Zwingli is really worried about idolatry. Mm -hmm. He's really worried about identifying the creator so with the creature that people begin to confer upon the creature glory, praise, and honor that really only belongs to the creator. And that leads him to worry about Luther's identification of Christ with the sacrament and with the way people, Luther maybe, but others certainly, were talking about the sacrament in a way that was offensive to Zwingli. And Zwingli writes about God's transcendence and his providence and his sovereignty in ways that are not entirely distant from Luther, but at more length and in ways maybe Luther does not. Right. And I think in that exchange of treatises back and forth before they met at Marburg, one of the things that Zwingli 
regularly hammered was that Christ in his human nature, in his glorified human nature, is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and therefore is not on earth. The whole point of the ascension is he's no longer here. Bodily. Bodily. And therefore, Luther's theology violate the doctrine of the ascension. And um, Luther's response, which is not a bad response, is, so Brother Zwingli, or actually he wouldn't have said brother, I think, <laughs> no, so no. Mr. Zwingli, <laughs> yeah. uh, where is the right hand of God? Yeah, exactly. And uh, Luther, I think, correctly points out the right hand of God is everywhere. So if you insist that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, then he's everywhere. And so there you have an underlying problem of two different views of the two natures of Christ. For Luther, what can be said of the deity can be said of the humanity. And Zwingli wants to distinguish the two and, depending on how one reads him, preserve the properties of each nature. So you do have competing Christologies underneath this debate about the supper. Isn't it also true that in Luther, one finds much, I think, more clarity about justification, faith, and salvation than one finds in Zwingli. I'm not saying Zwingli didn't believe in the Reformation solas, but it's difficult to find him, I think, talking very explicitly and in detailed ways about, you know, the righteousness of Christ imputed, received through faith, resting and receiving, or the law-gospel distinction. Zwingli seems more like sort of a young, restless, and Augustinian guy than Luther in some ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think uh, that tends to his spiritualizing approach. He's a lot more influenced by Platonism than Luther is. And I do think that, again, it's a bit of an emphasis rather than a real divide, I think. But he does perhaps look less to the body and blood of Christ, to that external gospel, and does stress more our response of faith and our spiritual connection with God. And in that regard, I think Calvin always felt closer to Luther than he did to Zwingli. Well, and Calvin says that early on he read Luther about Zwingli, and it made him very suspicious about Zwingli, and even Oikolampadius, so that for many years, I don't think until late into his ministry, did he ever actually sit down and read Zwingli for himself. Mm -hmm. And he actually mm -hmm. comments in a letter that he complains that Luther had sort of misled him a bit about Zwingli. I know he had the highest estimate for Oikolampadius. Right, who was a brilliant scholar, and uh, Calvin mostly was able to get along well with Bullinger, Zwingli's successor. And we always have to remember that Zwingli was cut down at the very pinnacle of his career, so that uh, where he would have gone, how he would have developed. I get the feeling, I've not studied this with great closeness, that Zwingli did modify his view of the supper by his contact with Luther and was moving in a direction that I think Luther would have been happier with. Maybe. <laughs> you cynic, you. Well, you know, it's one of those it's things. It's just <laughs> I'm so optimistic always. There we go. Um, easy going, Bob. If you look at the very last things that he wrote before his tragic death and martyrdom, even, right. we might say, we could debate about how much progress he's made or where he's going. I think we're not really being fed by Christ as much as we're having a really intense remembering experience. But there is an argument to be made to say that he progressed. There is some kind of presence for Zwingli. Yeah, is it psychological or is it objective? I think it's objective. I think Luther would have felt it was still too much the spirit and not enough of Christ himself. But I think there is a presence there. And that's, I think, why Calvin and Bullinger could come to an agreement that actually, at first glance, seems rather concessive on Calvin's part to the Zwinglian point of view. But when you read it more carefully, I think Calvin got most of what he wanted. That's interesting. I've been on both sides of that question, so I'm 
A double-minded man, you know. <laughs> you got to be careful. Well, I was with you until I read Thomas Davis, and he made an interesting case. So, it, yeah, it's well, I haven't read Thomas Davis, so uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> right. in a much better position than you are. Well, exactly. <laughs> You're not confused by Facts. scholarship. Yes, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, there's something to be said for reading the primary sources and sticking with your view. It certainly makes for a more interesting podcast. <laughs> it enables me to avoid all sorts of scholarly books. <laughs> exactly. You know. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So let's try to clarify what are the major disagreements between the Reformed and the Lutheran. So if a confessional Reformed Christian wanders into a confessional Lutheran congregation on a Sunday morning or on vacation or something, and ordinarily a Reformed Christian will not be admitted to the table in a Lutheran church, why is that? Well, in a Missouri Synod or Wisconsin yeah, Synod Lutheran Yeah, a, church. a confessing church as opposed to a mainline church like the ELCA. Well, I think there probably are conservative confessing Lutheran churches that might admit a Reformed person. You think so? I think maybe. <laughs> there, well, you know, I was okay. in Norway in the Norwegian Lutheran Church, and uh, the bishop, at least at the sacrament, was a very confessing Lutheran guy, and he welcomed me to the table. So okay, and he said to me, "Bob, we're not Missouri Synod okay. Lutherans right. here." So if you go into a Missouri Synod or Wisconsin Synod, you're going to right. be fenced from the table, right? So, and this relates to the Book of Concord, particularly yes. to the formula of Concord. You know, Calvin had concluded by late in his career that Lutheranism really had two wings that were not easy to reconcile with one another. And the hyper-Lutherans, as he would have seen them, the Genesio Lutherans, they saw themselves as the genuine Lutherans, really won the day in the formula of Concord. So that's where it's a little harder to reconcile Lutherans and Reformed. But Calvin felt in relation to the Melanchthonian, the moderate Lutherans, he felt very much at home with them. And arguably, there's some distance between Luther, who died in 1546, and the positions that the Lutheran Orthodox adopted by 1577 and 1580. Yes, I think that's right. I think it's fair to talk about Luther versus the Lutherans on certain points. Yes, I do too. I would say baptismal regeneration would be one of those points. I think their skittishness about election in a variety of ways is another point. The Book of Concord certainly doesn't sound much like Luther on election or arguably reprobation, right? Right. Or assurance or perseverance. Yes. And those are places where the Reformed reading, for example, Bondage of the Will or the Bound Will from 1525, they felt that they were with Luther and that he was with them. Absolutely. So what is it that separates us? It would be our view of the Supper and the difference between the Reformed and the confessional Lutheran now on baptism, on the two natures of Christ— Although I still think that's somewhat overdone myself. The reason I think both our traditions moved from discussions of the Supper to discussions of Christology is because Christology had been more thoroughly defined. And so if you could label your opponent with a condemned heresy, it made him look worse. I'm not so persuaded there's a huge Christological difference. Hmm. But you may think I'm being somewhat melanchthonian in that point. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a difficult question because, it again, it gets to with whom are we talking? Are we talking to Philip, who it seems to me in some ways was influenced by his interactions with people like Oikolampadius and Bootser and others and maybe moved in some ways through the 1540s 
toward the Reformed in certain ways. At least some of his Lutheran mm-hmm. friends suspected him of mm-hmm. doing so, and Calvin thought he had, and it looks like he did. He revised the Augsburg Confession, for example, on Article 10 from using the language of truly present to truly exhibited, which was language with which the Reformed could agree, perhaps some of them a little more easily. Certainly the Swiss Reformed could agree with that more easily. Yeah, if you're looking at some of the more hardcore confessional guys, Johannes Brentz, for example, mm-hmm. talks about the ubiquity of Christ's humanity, the everywhereness of the humanity by virtue of the union of the two natures, even in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. And that's where some of the Orthodox tend to go in mm-hmm. the 1570s mm-hmm. and following. Whatever the differences may be in the 40s and 50s, they're more exacerbated in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right. And as both the Lutheran and Reformed develop very sophisticated scholastic theologies in the 17th century, the arguments become ever more precise and more separating than certainly Luther talked in his day. One of the things that distinguishes the Lutheran and the Reformed is the way we look at worship. And that's not one of the areas that we typically focus on. If you were to get a gathering of, you know, 25 Reformed people and 25 Lutherans and say, what separates us? The discussions would be about the supper and predestination, not unconditional election, but reprobation, perseverance, maybe baptism. But uh, we probably wouldn't get to worship. But in the context of the 16th century, Calvin was acutely aware that there were some significant differences between the way he wanted to think about worship and I think the way most of the Reformed wanted to. We could discuss Bootser as a kind of mediating figure and the way the Lutherans wanted to think about worship. Although late in his career, he writes— He? Who is he? Calvin. Okay. Late in his career, Calvin writes in a dedicatory letter from one of his commentaries that he and the Lutherans agree on worship. So we have to be careful not to overdo that. To be fair, as you say, this is a good point. Calvin called himself a Lutheran, and he called the Lutherans our churches— And when he thought there was a possibility that the churches in Hesse and Saxony might be attacked by Roman troops, he asked for permission to have a day of prayer in Geneva specifically for the Lutherans. And he said more than once that these churches are the foundation of our churches. So he did feel a very strong sense of kinship. He did. He did. And last month I was able to be in Torgau, which is the German city where the first Protestant church was built, and Luther was there at the dedication. And when you go in, you find it a very simple building. The decoration that we often think of as offensive to us as Reformed people in a lot of Lutheran churches are leftover decorations. I think Heiko Obermann had a very interesting article on that. I think Luther really thought this decoration stuff would go away. He thought it shouldn't be forced out as a kind of legal requirement, but he really was not himself all that attached to it or stressed its importance. And you see that at Torgau. And Luther was himself optimistic about what was going to happen, right? Well, yeah, to the extent that he didn't think the end of the world was coming soon. I mean, Luther in particular thought that the world was nearing the end and there wasn't a lot of time. That may have also made him a little more patient about not trying to put everything in immediate good order. So what is the difference now between the confessing Lutherans and the confessing Reformed? The Reformed are nicer than the Lutherans. (laughs) But relative to worship. Well, again, the Lutherans want to say these things are indifferent. The having of images in their churches is a matter of indifference. The Reformed see it as more than a matter of indifference. And it is very interesting that apparently, at least one scholar argues this, I've never checked it out personally, that Luther nowhere in his massive corpus of writings ever deals with the statement in the Ten Commandments that there are to be no images. 
there are things, but I mean, as analyzing that scriptural passage to figure out what it means for God's people, because he's very clear the Ten Commandments are our guide, he never explicitly addresses just that question. So, this is why Calvin didn't see as much distance between himself and Luther no. as we experience now between confessional Reformed folk and confessional Lutheran folk. And I bet a lot of confessional Reformed folk, if they went to a confessional Lutheran service, would find a surprising amount of scripture reading and psalm singing compared with what they have at home. If you go back and look at Luther's preface to the German Mass of 1526, his ideal is a simple service of scripture reading and prayer and singing and preaching and sacrament. He's not talking about any kind of elaborate Mass there. So the Lutheran and the Reformed churches, the the denominations as we experience it now, are somewhat alienated from each other. We're able to cooperate on some things, but as I was suggesting earlier, you know, if you walk into a Wisconsin Synod or Missouri Synod church, most Reformed people are not going to be admitted to the table. And sometimes students have asked me, it seems like, given our history, that the Lutheran and the Reformed, at least looking at the 16th century, should be natural allies relative to much of what goes on, you know, in broader American and evangelical Christianity. How do you think about that? Because you've been involved in some cooperative ventures. Well, I think confessional Lutherans in America are perhaps more defensive precisely because they sense that American Protestantism is dominated not by Calvinism so much as by revivalism, although I think they tend to call revivalism Calvinism. So I think they feel the need, if they're going to survive, if their distinctive notions of church life and Christian truth are to be preserved, they need to cut themselves off from this mess of American Protestantism. And I'm not so sure they're not right about that instinct. I think American Presbyterianism, by trying to provide leadership to the revivalist movements and trying to work in and with and under them, have actually found themselves more compromised than uh, influential. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.